From tattoos to tombstones, billboards to political speeches. From providing immigrants a language in which to understand an incomprehensible landscape, to being reinterpreted by Indigenous Christians as a light to shine back on the worst of white Australia. The Bible in this country has had a mixed, complicated and unavoidable history. In almost every major national discussion, the Bible has played a part, often appearing on both sides. As much as it is often misunderstood, maligned or misused, it has played a contested but defining role in this country. Welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. My name is Liam Miller and today's guest is Meredith Lake, author of The Bible in Australia, A Cultural History. Meredith is a historian and a broadcaster hosting Soul Search on ABC Radio National. She is also an honorary associate of the Department of History at Sydney University, my alma mater. The book was recently shortlisted for the 2019 New South Wales Premier's History Awards and was named the 2018 Australian Christian Book of the Year. Please clap your hands or make a drum roll on your Bibles as we welcome Meredith Lake to love, rinse, repeat. Well, Meredith Lake, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Liam. It's great to chat with you. So we're talking your, today about your book, The Bible in Australia, A Cultural History. I guess, let's just start with the broad question. Why did you write the book? What got you interested to talk about the Bible in Australia? Oh, well, there's, I guess everybody has a, a bit of a complicated relationship to the stuff that they spend years thinking about and <laughs> writing about. But I guess the simplest story is that I trained as a historian of religion in Australia, um, which for me was about combining my personal interest in things of faith and particularly to do with Jesus with kind of the broader story of Australia's social and cultural history. And so I, I studied all that kind of stuff through uni, did my PhD and kind of, I guess, became a historian of religion here. And then kind of as a young academic in the higher education gig economy, I took a writing job with the Bible Society for what was originally going to be a 6,000-word essay for high school students to go on some website. Um, That was in 2014. And here we are in 2019 with a 100,000-word book that wasn't, it wasn't commissioned by the Bible Society in the end. It was, it just became an independent project that I ran with. Uh, that University of New South Wales Press picked up and published. So it was just, I guess, that one little commission sparked the idea. And once I started to sketch out, oh, I wonder how you would tell that story, I realised, oh, actually, this is a fascinating way to get into the story uh, of faith and non-faith, actually, in this country, because all kinds of people have an opinion about the Bible. Mm. Um, And it gives you this alternative perspective on, I guess, our story as a community. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, and 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 uh, you know maybe some relief or good news to those who are constantly going over their word counts. Maybe sometimes just embrace and <laughs> like just don't yeah, turn yeah. back. Uh, so the yeah, book. I think that sometimes the story drives you. Yeah. Yeah. So the story begins. Uh, you know, you kind of do a nice cinematic thing. We flash forward to the present, and then or near present, and then we go right back. But so you start with tattoos. You start with uh, the My Brother's Keeper. Um, Ra Boy's tattoo. So I guess, you know, since, and tattoos come up throughout the book, uh, biblical tattoos, uh, as you talk about yeah. you know, the very early days. Um, so what's the best Bible-based tattoo you've ever seen? 
Oh, I see. I, I'm not inked myself. It's not actually a subculture that I'm very familiar with. But I, I loved that story uh, of the convicts with, with literally with biblical tattoos, not just images, but text. Mm. Things like, you know, fools mock at sin. I mean, imagine showing up as a convict with that on your body. It's, it's kind of, it's so subversive, but so subtle. It's, it's like with the, you know, the tax collector and the Pharisee standing on the corner, um, you know, don't mock it at sin. But if you're mocking me, you know, maybe you're the sinner. And I, I love the way that someone on the, the margins of society that's obviously got very little power can kind of internalise it really literally uh, to, to kind of critique the structures of their day. And um, that, that intrigues me. Hmm. That's so, and that kind of gets us into a bit of the, the mode of, I guess, a cultural history in that, you know, you're looking into things like tattoos and journals and, and many things that we don't tend to look at. Um, and it made me think, I was thinking about, uh, so my family and I went on a holiday to Norfolk Island uh, recently, uh, and we went to one of the really old cemeteries there, you know, which have been around for a long time. And we were reading the, like, you know, the Bible verses or the scriptural allusions, or sometimes I think like basically whole sermons that are on um, people's headstone. And, and I, as I said at the time, uh, some of the, some of the best sermons I'd heard that year were on, uh, you know, 19th century tombstones. Um, my favourite was actually someone, it wasn't a biblical reference, but it was just, um, oh, we shall find ourselves again, um, oh, we shall find our jewel again set in God's own diadem, um, which I really like. So, but this kind of is, you know, you're looking in different places. Uh, so maybe talk a bit about like why it was important for you to take this kind of approach and, and you know, beyond tattoos, where were some of the, interesting places you ended up looking yeah I mean that's that's why I got so addicted almost to this topic because of course yeah you find the bible in the obvious places like in churches in um in homes around the table in personal and private and family devotional kind of contexts you find it in schools it was the text that so many settler Australians learned to read on all those things but then it also the fact that it's been taken so readily to be the inspired word of God in some sense means that it kind of has this, this weight, this cultural hangover that goes well beyond the institutions of the church. Um, the way it seeps into ordinary language in some of our phrases, like even in sports reportage, you know, you might have um, the writing on the wall for a football team or, or something like that. We use this lingo David all the and time. Goliath battle. Uh, but also... As a, as a source of, I guess, creative inspiration. Like I love, yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it's imagery is, is everywhere, um, but we don't always now anyway have the biblical literacy that might help us recognise those things. But I think seeing the Bible as, as something that's transmitted with colonists from Europe to, an, you know, to Indigenous land, disrupting Indigenous societies and realising it's not just about the story of faith, it's about the story of cultural transmission, of colonisation, mm. and then of the, the critique of colonisation once it's in the hands of Indigenous people, um, that, that it's, it's, it's as political as it's uh, theological, um, and that really grabbed me. But then, yeah, all the stories of, of activists, but also novelists, painters, you know, writers, mm. uh, there's a lot of people in Australian history who've, who've grappled with it in one way or another, whether theologically or otherwise. You might be touching on it there, but I guess I was going to ask you if there's one kind of big myth 
um, that you want to just bust right now um, to both get people excited about the book, but just, you know, because we've got an audience uh, about the Bible in Australia. Is there one particular one that you're like, actually, I, I can get, you know, 40, 50, 100 people right now. Uh, let me do it. What would, what would that myth be that you want to bust? Well, I, th I think there's two myths um, mm. that I absolutely want to bust. One is the myth that this was somehow from colonization onwards, a Christian country in any kind of straightforward way. Um, uh, because, it, you know, the Bible arrives with the colonists, the British colonists on the first fleet with the first chaplain, Richard Johnson. And he thinks it's God's word. It's, it's the, the, the truth about humanity and about our future state, calling people to repentance. That like, that's kind of what he, what energizes his whole spirit and his vision for the community. But you've also got convicts who are using it subversively and who are not famous for their piety. Uh, you have a state, like the state, the governor, who's using it as a tool of social order, mm. the officers on the fleet who are largely men of the Enlightenment, who knew its narratives and talked about the fleet as a Noah's Ark, but, you know, weren't exactly um, convinced that this was God's word for the whole world. So mm. you kind of got this contest right from the outset. And I think the dynamism of the Bible in Australian cultural history is not because everybody agreed on it or its authority, but the dynamism of the argument about the Bible, that that's actually where a lot of the energy um, in our cultural dynamic has come from. Mm -hmm. So that the idea of a simple Christian past, I, I, I just don't think it exists, and the history of the Bible shows that. Mm -hmm. But then, on the other hand, there's this other counter myth we often hear that, well, an authentic Australian is kind of godless. You know, from the convicts onwards, religion's kind of been this weird hangover from the old world that the more mature of us have just ditched. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that it's this cultural outlier rather than something that might actually be sincere or authentic or perhaps even, um, you know, profoundly formative for people here. And that too is a myth um, in the sense that whatever people thought, most, most settler Australians had, it was the Bible they were in, in argument with or in dialogue about until fairly recently. That was the touchstone text, even for our sharpest atheists and our most you know, vocal sceptics. Um, it was a kind of Christian scepticism, if you like, in that sense. And the Bible was the key text for that. And then I think the way that the Bible's transcended cultural boundaries, the way it's gone from being the text of the colonisers to, to something that Indigenous Australians have reinterpreted and, and focused back against the worst abuses of white society. I, I think it just, it busts out of all these box, boxes. Mm. And, and that, that makes me think that to, to leave religion aside in the way we talk about Australian culture is, is a big mistake. Mm. Well, I think it's, it's, it's really interesting the way you kind of, that the Bible being kind of, or the use of the Bible being on both sides of most of the chapters in Australia's history kind of comes out that, um, and in the kind of the chapter on God's immigrants, on like the early white settlers and, and immigrants coming, you know, you talk about how providence was the most common metaphysical term being used in that time there was lots of biblical language and imagery both being used to kind of um, promote migration to Australia and to kind of reflect and interpret on um, the land once people were there uh, and then it kind of gets brought into the way people are either you know displacing um, indigenous populations and settling the land uh, in this kind of um, strong sense of the subdue and, and dominate, but then also the Bible at the same time is being used to, you know, refer to the treatment of the Indigenous people as Australia's national sin. Like that language in 1830, when you brought that up, was, was I was hugely surprised by that. But, you know, even in that, in that 
epoch, but then kind of continued this, the Bible being used by kind of well, most people, people on definitely, you know, not any one side. It's been used to engage both uh, on both aspects of that, which I found very interesting. Yeah, and I think what, there's a there's the hermeneutic question, if that's not too nerdy, like the, the question of what have people thought the Bible says? And that's a huge question. It's a bigger question than, say, you know, what was Shakespeare on about? Because when, when a significant proportion of people treat the Bible as God's authoritative word, that's often been accompanied by an effort to bend mm. their lives to what they think it means. Um, and, and that... that bending, if you like, that, that effort to implement whatever you take it to mean um, is specific to its status as a sacred text. And that gives it enormous power in the life of the reader, of the individual, but also in the communities around them. Uh, and, and that, it's hard, I think, even now to imagine how potent that was uh, in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, with, but but it's, it's a very powerful thing, shaping like everything from the, yeah, the debate over colonisation uh, to to the question of poverty and how you deal with you know inequality among rich and poor, uh, you know to whether the the proper role of women in a society, all these big questions that we're still talking about, frankly, um, have been considered in light of the Bible as something that 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 might be re relevant. You you talk in the book about you know just at the point that colonist Australia is having the discussion of. Um, you know, what makes a good nation or make a good society, a great society, is right at the peak of Christian socialization. So at the peak of like, you know, Bibles in, in most homes and in, in all this, you know. Um, and that obviously is a huge effect on the way that debate happens. And and you know, both from those who are, you know, treating the Bible as this inspired word of God and those who was a cultural artifact and those in which it's just the kind of you know, shapes language and, and yeah, like a background uh, noise. Yeah, yeah. So, what what was your kind of were there any interesting discoveries you had in the way you now think, you know looking at that history of those debates? You know, as you kind of saw what rich biblical soil it was kind of taking place in, and and you know, how do you then understand? I guess the, the legacy of you know the idea of the Australian nation uh, today. Yeah, well, I think what's fascinating about that is that you know it's not like the bible arrived and has been in decline ever since the the 19th century and especially the late 19th century there's this global bible boom and australia is one of the places where we see that most clearly like as you mentioned it, it kind of gets distributed really widely for the first time literally by people going door to door knocking on houses saying oh i'm from the bible society do you want one of these but also it's like it's about the industrialization of printing which means cheap bibles are everywhere like it's part of what's modern, along with the steam train in the ballot box, you know, is these cheap Bibles. And the 19th century is really the time when, when, when the Bible booms as a, as a ubiquitous text. Um, and you're right, nearly everybody in Australia by, by the Federation pretty much has one, uh, which, which is an extraordinary thing to think about, even just as part of our material history. But whether people believed it in one way or another, whether they went to church or not, what that means is it's, it's kind of part of common culture. So when they're debating institutions like banks, insurance mutuals, charities, political organisations, all these kinds of things, the Bible is kind of the background text for that, shaping, I guess, the, the, the range of possibilities for how people imagined the good society. 
And so, and, and alongside that too, there were obviously a lot of people who did kind of have a heartfelt connection to the Bible as, as a way of hearing from God. And, and that, that galvanized a, often a kind of altruism, actually. Um, we, we see it in the, the first wave suffrage hmm. feminist movement. Uh, lots of those women were Sunday school ladies who compa- campaigned for the vote um, with a certain idea about uh, their, their citizenship. Um, yeah, and that, that, that really does, I think, define the emerging nation. Not, not always positively. People, hmm. settlers, did not and st- arguably still don't um, perceive, I guess, the extent of the displacement that they caused, the disruption they wreaked in Indigenous society, and we're, we're still dealing with with those those legacies. Um, but but it is the thing that often helps communities lift their eyes above self interest, and I think I think that's something to reflect on in our society now. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, you touched on then, and it's come up a few times, that there's also exactly the relationship of the Bible with Indigenous Australia, which, which begins right at the jump. Um, yeah. And, and it's, again, it's complicated where, um, with this thing of, of being on kind of all sides of the issue where um, it was used as part of, you know, control and, um, uh, and, and outright kind of racialized attitudes and, and all that, but it was also... Um, you know, often the reason we have that, that Indigenous languages have survived is because of early translation efforts. And, and you kind of note about the way um, the preservation or the translation of Indigenous languages into the, or the Bible into Indigenous languages was often curtailed by the government, not by the missionaries. Missionaries were wanting to do it and they would receive um, mm. kind of blockages. And, you know, this kind of mixed uh story comes there but then there's also from the jump also as you say interpretation and reappropriation from indigenous Christians who are taking what came from the colonizers and turning it into a uh a tool of resistance and that continues and grows throughout the australian history um what was it like exploring this uh side of it uh, this side of the cultural history which runs through the book um and uh you know, what were some of your i guess um what kind of what got raised for you, interesting questions that came out from it um, in the nature of the Bible and translation uh, and just in terms of thinking about this history in a, a different way? Yeah, well, I think that's a really complicated uh, part of the story. And I, I think what I would say is actually it's not missionaries who saved Indigenous languages, but Indigenous people who, I mean, in all kinds of ways, fought to preserve their own languages, cultures, communities and, and kind of linguistic identities and did that even in missionary context, obviously against the odds, um, finding avenues very creatively to, 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 to how do I say this, to endure hmm. a, like a devastating disruption that was, that was, you know, caused massive loss of life, um, huge environmental destruction. And, in, and really the survival of Indigenous languages is a story of Indigenous resilience. Hmm. Sometimes missionaries got absolutely in the way of that, mm. um, stamping out Indigenous languages. Sometimes, it, you know, the, the hurdle they set up was smaller than that. But I, th- I think, I think realising that, that, that um, the Bible doesn't belong to the colonisers, mm. um, it's, it, it's, not a Euro- it's not an inherently European book, but it arrived in Australia in a European form. And for Indigenous Australians to engage with the Bible, recover a non-European Bible, if you like, 
uh, and then ask afresh the question of what does this mean for our common life. That that's a huge for me as as a, someone descended from the colonisers to actually just listen in a way th to Indigenous voices through the sources was a huge part of what writing this book was about for me. Mm. Uh, you know, the, 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 the settler churches have a terrible <laughs> track record actually of um, being humble enough to accept Indigenous leadership uh, and, 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 you know, it's, it's, a, it's a varied story across the whole country and over time, of course, but, but to kind of go, there are, there's 200 years of Indigenous Christianity here that's still on, you know, on the margins of the mainstream conversation. Uh, and that that's an indictment, I think. Um, and at the same time, to kind of to educate myself a little bit by listening to the sources and, and hearing some of those stories about incredible Christian leaders um, like William Cooper, like um, Doug Nichols, um, Don Brady up in Queensland. Uh, I mean, there, there's there's cast of thousands almost. Mm. Um, Moses Chakabolta, the Aranda evangelist at the end of the 19th century. Um, and to kind of to bust out of my own white box a bit by listening better across across that cultural divide. Um, and, and I think the Bible and how it's been read is, is very much part of that story of, of, of renegotiation and of how, how to do citizenship, how to do community across these big divides. Yeah, thank you for that. And I uh, apologise for the way I phrased the, uh, the question, because eh? I think you're right. It comes through very strongly in the book, the, uh, the role of the Indigenous Christian leaders in, yes, Enduring and, and what's really interesting from you know the theological perspective is the questions that were being raised then of what words to use for God or what words to use uh, you know in, in different translational yeah. uh, questions of whether you keep God as you know the English God or whether you use a, a, a different word with possibly other um, you know things that came with it but that's something that is always good to keep in our mind because it reminds us that the English choices are all choices as well um, which is important. Yeah, that's right. That that. Yeah, and that how to how trans how to translate that? There's always cultural translation going on, even when we we don't recognise it in ourselves. Yeah. Uh, so another thread that kind of runs through the book is is this nature of the Bible as you know both a, a cultural book, like as you said in the first fleet, there are those who are kind of using it as you know a cultural tool, um, and the Bible is a, a theological text in which we're pious believers are going to seek the word of God. Um, and, you know, those, those two are a blurred line a lot of the times. And, and I think you kind of point out that the, the former view is, is reliant somewhat on the, on the latter, you know, Shakespeare doesn't have the same because no one's making the claim um, except very, very nerdy English majors. Um, <laughs> but um, how is that? How is it interesting following that thread? And I guess as we're getting into the more contemporary age, but potentially the cultural side of the Bible is less, um, holds less weight. How do you see that kind of dual role in Australia's history in the kind of more recent times up until, I guess, the present? Yeah, well, I think the way people engage with the Bible is changing. And for a lot of people out there, I suspect it's through, you know, not by reading it at home or going to church, but maybe reading the novels of Tim Winton or listening to the music of Paul Kelly who's called himself an atheist, uh, that, that, that the way the Bible kind of simmers around in culture mediates it to us in different ways to perhaps were more dominant earlier. Although that said, like the newspaper has always been a, a crucial part of uh, how people have come into contact with the Bible and, and related ideas. Um, 
and I think actually the kind of cultural shifts, but also the technological shifts in the way we communicate with the rise of social media and things like that, we're in the middle of a really big change about how how we read, let alone, you know, how, <laughs> yeah. how we understand something like a, a sacred text. And that the kind of, we're going to have to just kind of wait a little bit to see what the fallout might be. But I think you're right, it's a really live issue. Um, but we And with those changes, it's come where Bible engagement happens has shifted, but also who has Bible literacy, um, that's also shifting. Um, churchgoers have, have a degree, high, highly educated kind of English majors, as you mentioned, might have some, but it's often gendered as um, women as the custodian of the kind of devotional Bible, um, the majority of churchgoers in this country being female, and that there's these kind of who, who might actually have a working knowledge of, of, of the text, however you understand that. Um, that that's probably moving as well. And I, and I think, um, well, I'm a historian, so I like to take the long view, but I think we're... So uh, one of the questions, one of the new segments uh, for Love, Rinse, Repeat uh, recently is called Pairings. Uh, so basically I ask you with the book uh, to pair a drink, a song, and another book uh, to go with uh, your book. So uh, I'll open that up to you now. Sorry, I missed that whole... Um, That's all right. Okay, I'll just do it quickly sorry. again. Here you go. Um, one, of, one of the new segments we've been playing on Love, Rinse, Repeat is called Pairings, uh, where I ask you, you know, to take your book and pair it with a, uh, a drink uh, a me or a meal, a drink and a meal, a, uh, a song and another book. So, so I open it up to you now, uh, Meredith. The Bible in Australia, a cultural history. Let's get some pairings. I'm, I'm taking a meal or a drink or, or some combination a song and another book. Ooh. I mean, a song? Let's go for a song. Yeah. Um, I mean, just lately I've been listening to Dan Sultan's incredible album, Killer, and there's a track on there called Kingdom, which I think is it's unreal. Um, and what I love about this music, it's, it's so unresolved. Like it doesn't, it doesn't come down. It's not a, it's not a faith song. It's not... It's not a Christian song in any sense, and I wouldn't have a clue actually what Dan Sultan's, you know, metaphysical commitments might be. Uh, but that sense of kingdom coming here right now, that yearning for justice, mm. that echoes in language as well as in, in theme some of the, I guess, some of the most potent aspects of the Bible and the way it's been received in Australia. I think that for me kind of sums up a little bit um, the open-endedness, but also the the potential of of people's continued engagement with the Bible at a time like now. Mm, thank you for that. And uh, I guess one last quick question, or maybe it won't be. Hopefully, um, is did anything uh, change about the way you read the Bible? Or did one main thing change about the way you read the Bible if you read it um, following following the writing of the book? Yeah, and, and I do read it. Um, I, I find the Bible to be a book that rewards attention. Um, I don't find it a very easy book. Um, yeah, yeah, I think, it, I think that it brought to the foreground for me just how important our own situatedness is, if that makes sense, the, the yep. position we read it from and how much impact that has, because I can see that in history, how much colonists saw some things in it and other people saw others, and just to kind of I guess a take home was to keep that in view as just as a, as a, in my own reading. Um, but also I think the capacity of, of a text as sprawling and as complex as the Bible 
to really surprise um, and to kind of startle me and uh, and not just me, but many people in Australian history who've kind of had to kind of pause and go, hang on, because of because of something they've read there. And I think I don't think that's contingent on you know church going or on a more or less Christianish culture. You know, I think I think that's just part of it as 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 literature that you attend to. Um, and to not lose sight of that, I think, is something that I found, yeah, something I've been reflecting on ever since. Mm, thank you for that. So everyone's going to go out and buy the Bible in Australia, <laughs> a cultural history, and then they're going to tell a friend to buy it, and then they're going to leave a review on Amazon or some place like that uh, to help spread <laughs> the word. So obviously that's a given. So you don't have to plug that because I just know my peeps, my, peeps, my listeners here, and they're going to do that. Sure. Do yeah. So what else... Uh, what else do you want people? How can people connect with you? Uh, you want to talk, talk about soul search, uh, you know, social media. What do, you, what do you want to throw out there for us? Yeah, well, that's the thing. Since writing this book and, you know, I've kind of leapt off a cliff from kind of <laughs> long-form history writing into weekly radio. Um, so, yeah, so I'm working at the ABC now, hosting um, what I hope is kind of a, a really open conversation about how religion and spirituality works out in people's lives mm. and in their communities, uh, which is a great opportunity for me to just let my own curiosity off the hook and work out how mm. other people tick. Um, mm. We're only a couple of months in, but that's, you know, that's podcast by the ABC and wherever else people listen. Um, but that, that's been really great for me this year. And um, it's just hearing stories of, um, yeah, how people do life and what they think about things. Um, yeah, I think that's always a rewarding thing to, to tune into. Mm. It, and um, the list of guests already is, is so great. Um, people who followed when we did Jesus 1224, love Ringer Peak fans who know that, um, both Seth Carroll and Brooke Prentice, previous um, speakers at that conference ha- have been on. So people should really go and check that out. Yeah, yeah, they were great guests. And I learned so much about Pacific theology from, from Seth Carroll. It was wonderful. Yeah. So, uh, Meredith Lake, thank you for joining us on Love, Rinse, Repeat. Hope the uh, the book continues to impact the way we consider both our nation and, and, and the Bible. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Liam. It's been a pleasure. No worries. <laughs>